0: A few years ago, about 20 years ago, when I was 7, just kidding, Kathy and I had just started dating, okay, it was 20 years ago, I wasn't 7, but I think we were in college or maybe at the end of high school and I had gone on vacation with her family and at the end of that vacation as people were bustling about and we were getting ready to go and eating breakfasts. I went to the refrigerator, got the, well, I should say, reluctantly got the skim milk, because I had grown up in a family where people didn't drink this contraption, concoction that looked like a little bit of milk, that, the rest of which was filled with water. But unfamiliar with it as I was, I nonetheless poured it on my cereal because I was a dutiful fellow and did not wish to cause any trouble. I began eating it as I was watching some riveting thing like the Today show. And Kathy in turn poured herself a bowl of cereal. And as she began eating, she was several minutes behind me, maybe 5 or 10. She started having what I now assume was an appropriate response. Oh! This milk is spoiled. It's sour. And my response as I ate the same milk was, oh, I just thought that's what skim milk tastes like. <laughs> I learned that day that is not what skim milk tastes like. I later got converted when we were married. But on that day, I was eating milk. It looked plenty good, except that it was skim milk. But it looked plenty good. But it had uh, bacteria in it, too much bacteria, I suppose, and it had gone bad, even though it looked fine. And I think that in a way that's what the Apostle uh, John is talking about as he shares this vision from Jesus to a church that he adores. As he's giving them a picture of the trickiest kind of trouble that we can run into sometimes. And this is a fitting, at least in our opinion, ending to our little survey that we've been calling Catechized by Affliction. We've been looking at the different ways that God instructs us and teaches us through our troubles, how we can extract good out of apparent evil. But one of the trickiest kinds of trouble is when nothing seems wrong. When everything's going quite swimmingly. When there are no real problems to speak of. And you think, well, I mean, life's not so bad. And we can get lulled in a way. Everything can look fine on the outside, but we can be spoiling. And the church at Laodicea is a church that has, in many ways, gone sour. Not too much bacteria, but too much wealth and too little... God, and it was a bad combination for them. And so we're going to look at that today for a few minutes, this tricky sort of trouble when there doesn't seem to be any trouble in your life, and you might be in worse shape than you imagine. Jesus opens up to this church and says, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's Creation. He's offering to them that he's the true reflection of what God's all about. And his point in introducing himself here, like he doesn't do in the other six letters to the churches in this little network, in this little presbytery, we'll call it, is that he starts out by saying he's the faithful and true witness because you know why? They were supposed to be a witness to him, this church. They were supposed to be a living embodiment of him. They were supposed to be a reflection of all of his vitality and all of his concerns. And like spoiled milk, they in some ways looked like a church, but they had gone sour. They weren't a witness at all. And so the true witness is saying, here's what it's like. Here's what I'm calling you to. You've heard me say before that a witness, and this is someone else's statement, but I've said it more than two or three times, and Steve Brown said, once you quote somebody two or three times, the statement's yours. (laughs) The living as a witness means you live your life in such a way that it wouldn't make any sense at all if God wasn't real, if God didn't exist, if God wasn't animating your life, there there would be no other way to explain it. And see, Jesus envisions that all of His churches would be witnesses to Him in that sense, that the Spirit of God would be so prevalent and so active, so energetic, that churches would bear some resemblance to Him. That people would look at Him and say, Oh, that's that's something like what God is like. And apparently this church had none of that. Yesterday, in our house we were rocking out to a Pandora radio station, one of my favorites, the R.E.M. station. When I was a middle school student and high school student, I loved R.E.M. before they got way weirded out. And there was this song that most of you probably know by heart called Hugga. Do you know the words of that? It's on Life's Rich Pageant. Well, we're rocking out to this song, or I was rocking out to it, and my sons heard one intelligible lyric, which is unusual when Michael Stipe is muttering things. And he heard this, well, we burned the river down. And it caught his ears, because water's not supposed to catch on fire. We're not an incredibly bright family, but we know certain things. <laughs> and that's the lyric, we burn the river down. He's, and it gave me an opportunity to explain to him. See, this is the poetry of music. This song, you know what this song's about? It's about the Cuyahoga River, this river in Ohio. And see, you hear the other lyric? Here's the other lyric in it. This is where we walked and swam, hunted, danced, and sang. See, the Iroquois lived there first. They called it Cuyahoga means the crooked river. This was the place. It was a river. It was a place of vitality. This is the center of their lives. This was a place of flourishing like rivers are supposed to be. And then the white man gets a hold of it. And from 1868 until the early 70s, a reported 13 fires developed on this river. On the river. In 1969, a Time magazine reporter said this after a big fire on the river Oh, heavens, stinking phones. You know what? This is really bad. I lost my place. Now I'm killing time. And I can't find it. I'm not going to bother. He said, This is the kind of river where you don't drown, you decay. People swimming in this river don't drown, they decay. He said something else along those lines, I can't remember what it was. But the idea was, here is a river. This is a river that was supposed to be effective as a river, a place of life, a place a community could live around, where they could walk and hunt and fish and sing. They could have joy. But when that river becomes polluted, when it gets polluted, Blocked up with too many things in it. It's no longer effective for its purpose. It's not a river anymore. It can catch fire. That's the first sign that it's not a river anymore. And Jesus is saying, you're a church that like milk that's spoiled, like a river that can now catch on fire. You're a church, Laodicea, not Rock Creek Fellowship. You're a church, Laodicea, who has become so smug and self-satisfied in The attainment of riches and privileges and blessing, that you're not effective as a church anymore. I know your deeds, he says. You don't have any. There isn't any hint of me there. See, their take on this is this church. This is what Jesus says. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. Their read on themselves is, hey, we've made it. We've got stained glass. The ladies wear pretty dresses when they come to church. They don't drive Nissan Sentras, they've got Mercedes Benzes. We don't need anything, we're good. Laodicea was known, it was a place of a booming economy. They had a great textile business, wool production. They had a famous medical school there. There was an earthquake that had happened in this area sometime earlier, and they, alone among most of the cities, said to the federal government, we don't need your help. The rich citizens of the, country, of the city rebuilt the city themselves. This is a self-sufficient people. This is a people who are wealthy. And their assessment of their wealth, their assessment of them not needing anything is, we must be pretty favored. There's a whole brand of Christianity. It's all over the place. It's being exported to Africa. It's being exported through missionaries that says, if God likes you, you won't be stuck in no Nissan, baby. It's European imports for you. You'll have a fancy house. You'll be sleek. You'll be shiny. You'll be healthy. And see, when you start to get some good stuff going in your life, it's very easy. It's a very subtle shift, but it's very easy for us to think, hey, I have better stuff than other people. I'm better than other people. Nobody in here thinks they do that. I know, I know. I don't either. But I guarantee you all do in subtle ways. And Jesus is saying, look, here's your read on it. You think your wealth is a sign of your favored status? Just like Ephraim said in Isaiah, I've become rich, I've found wealth for myself, and in all my labors they'll find in me no iniquity. They think I'm blessed, so I must not even have any sin. Look how much God has given me. He must really, really love me. I must be his choicest one. That's their read on the situation. Jesus's read is, you guys are compromised and adulterated. You make me want to vomit. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm about to upchuck you. Spoiled milk. Because you look like milk, but you're not milk. You're spoiled. You look like a river, but you're on fire. You're not a river anymore. You're ineffective as a river. See, because there are two real main responses to God's kindness to us, to His blessings in our lives. The one is the normal one. Where you... You get things and then you forget about God. You get things from God and they become replacements for God. And that's a very easy place for most of us to be because nobody, and I've said this before, nobody in here thinks they're rich. I know that. I've never met any person who thought they were rich. But as we've said before, if you woke up this morning and you said, Hey, which shirt am I going to wear today? Instead of, I better wear my only shirt today. If you've got choices, you've got riches. If you had more than a shoe to put on, you're probably okay. Most of you have what you need. Well, so these things can become replacements for God. We don't need God for wellness. We go to the hospital. You don't need God for your food. You go buy it at the store. Most of us don't wake up wondering if we're going to eat or anything, if we're going to have shelter. We worry about a lot of stuff, but it's not needful worry. It's easy to get arrogant. Now a proper response is like King David when he's living in a fine palace and he says, my goodness gracious, God's temple doesn't exist. He doesn't say it that way. it's what he realizes. The ark's living in a Coleman tent. That's no digs for God. Here I am in a pimped out palace. And God's got no place to live. I'm going to make a magnificent palace for him. And God says, no, no, this isn't for you to do. But you're going to, be my, you're going to be my guy. And your family is going to be ruling on the throne forever and ever. And you know what David responds to instead of saying, man, God's made these kind of promises to me. I am fantastic. Holy cow, I can't get over how magnificent I am. You know what he says? He sits down before God and he says, who am I? Who am I and who is my family that you would treat us like this? That you would be so good to us? Is this your normal way of dealing with people? See, when we're rightly calibrated toward God, we notice the good things in our lives, and they don't produce hardness of heart. They melt our hearts. See, this is a misnomer in the Reformed community, but Andrew Murray corrects it well when he says, humility, we think of humility as making sure that people know just good and how bad they are. You are to think of yourselves as nothing more than excrement on the bottom of God's shoe. And if you know how excrementy you are, then then you'll have humility. But Andrew Murray says, no, 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 that's not how you get humility. You know how humility comes? It's when you know what you are and you encounter God's goodness in the face of what you are. And it melts you. You know that song we sing sometimes? Dissolved by thy goodness I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of the mercy I've found. God's goodness when your heart's firing on all six cylinders is melted. It melts stony hearts. But when there's something defective, when our pride is up, his goodness to us makes us start to think, Hey, I'm pretty good here. I'm better than them. It makes us want to hang on to our stuff. I earned that. I worked hard for that. Those lazy bums. I'm not helping those lazy bums. I won't get off the couch. And see, don't you know, this is exactly what Moses warned the Israelites about. As they were coming into the promised land. We talk about this from time to time. We're so susceptible to it. He says, please, 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 please. When you guys move into that gated community and you start getting a lot of massages and you're starting to eat lots of good wine and lots of choice-aged beef, and you're hanging out at the club, and you get to play a lot of golf, and you're getting tan and golden, golden, and you're all sleek and muscly. Do not think that you had anything to do with all that. Don't forget God, they say. Don't, don't. You're going to forget God. You're going to get proud in your heart. And you're going to say, "I earned all this." And then the next chapter, just to make sure they're clear. Like, God's handing this over to you. He said, don't make the mistake of thinking, hey, it's because of our righteousness that God's giving us this choice land. It's not! It's because of their wickedness! God likes you better than them. He's kicking them out and moving you in. It's because of the wickedness of the nations, not because of your dazzling goodness. And the point of that is not to make them feel bad. The point of that is to make them see how magnificent God is. And so they don't get haughty. They don't get arrogant. Because when you start to get blessings, if they don't melt your heart, they're going to harden your heart. And so Jesus is saying, you're getting hard, guys. Your, your hearts, they don't have any room for me. You've become ineffective as a church. My, my goodness to you has, it's starting to spoil you, just like a kid who got too much stuff. You've become self-fascinated. Self-reliant, self-indulgent, there is no room for me in you. And so you can't be my church. You're not effective as my church. So he says, you're not hot and you're not cold, you're just lukewarm. And I want to explain this because I think this is an often misunderstood kind of expression. I think we normally just think of it as, hey, you're on fire for God. And I think there's some of that. But you know what's interesting about Laodicea? They had one sort of Achilles heel. They had one weakness as a city. Their weakness was not dissimilar to the weakness of Phoenix or Las Vegas or any of the places in Southern California. You can be a prosperous, rich town, a golf resort town formed in the middle of a desert, and you've got one big major problem. What is that? Water! Phoenix is not a sustainable city. Las Vegas is not a sustainable city. There's no water supply. There's no natural water supply. It's with great difficulty you get enough water there. The Laodiceans had lots of wealth. The one problem they had, no water supply. But you know what? To the north of them, that's up. In Hierapolis, there were these magnificent hot springs that boiled out of the ground. And they were so hot that they had come to be known as having medicinal value and people would come there to get healed of ailments because of the hot water. And I don't know where east is, but on the map it's right. Right? Don't think... And to the east of them in Colossae, you've seen the letter to the Colossians. You know what they had? These springs of really cool, refreshing water. That's why the city was founded there probably. Great water supply. And that water was so refreshing. And Jesus is saying to them, if you were effective as a church, if you had me and you hadn't gotten clogged up and soiled and spoiled, what would be happening is, you would either be offering healing. The spiritually weary would be refreshed by your cold water. The broken down would be mended in the soaker of your... Ministries, but as it is, you're lukewarm. And see, the people of Laodicea would know this. You know why? Because the way they got their water was from these hot springs. They would come over through these aqueducts, and as, by the time they got into their water supply, it was still warm, lukewarm, tepid. And they had this bicarbonate, calcium bicarbonate in it. So it was—you drank it, and you went like that. Sorry if you have a bad gag reflex. See, because nobody says, man, I would love to have a nice, warm beer. Wouldn't a nice, warm beer hit the spot right now? No, people want a cold beer. They want a cold Coca-Cola. You don't say, oh, I'd love to take a, a nice, tepid bath at the end of a long day. Oh, it just feels so nice. No, you want a hot soaker. You do that sort of thing. And Jesus is saying, if you could be one or the other, but you're just useless. So it's not just about their spiritual energy, it's that there are no manifestations of the Jesus life in their community. They don't have any deeds that point to the fact that Jesus is living in them. And Jesus had said to his disciples, he says, if you have faith in me, you'll be doing even greater works than I've been doing. I'm going to go to the Father and you can ask me anything in my name and I'll do it so the Son would bring glory to the Father. He says in another place, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and I'll do it so that you can bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. He says, I appointed you. You didn't pick me. I appointed you that you might go bear fruit. Jesus' assumption is is if you are in communication and in life with Him, if you've not squelched Him, if you've not set up your life where He doesn't matter, the Jesus life is going to be coming out of you. A church where Jesus is is going to be having things come right out of them. There's going to be gratitude. There's going to be generosity. There's going to be care for the poor. There's going to be bearing each other's burdens. There's going to be the forgiveness of sins. There's going to be exuberant praise. There's going to be all kinds of deeds that say this is a church that is effective because Jesus lives there. But it's a tricky kind of trouble because, as C.S. Lewis once said, prosperity knits a man to the world. He thinks he's finding his place in it when really the world is finding its place in him. One of the things that can happen to us as we grow, things start happening. We start having influence, widening spheres of importance. We're not so worried about being able to pay the mortgage and all of a sudden God gets squeezed out. And Jesus says, don't become useless. And he gives them advice and we're closing with this. And I'm going to set up his advice by this. Now, here's what you should think so far. The moral of this story is God hates rich people. Right? Is that what you've gotten? God hates rich people and he wants you to feel bad because you have a home. He wants you to feel guilty because you have more things than other people around you. That's the moral of the story. Good day. It's not the moral of the story. He doesn't hate you. I know a lot of people, even though you say he loves you, you think he hates you, and you think, you feel guilty. Anytime you have any privileges, anytime you have anything good in your life, listen to this carefully. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Here's what's magnificent here. If you were so frustrated with somebody, you said, you make me want to vomit. Vomit. You wouldn't want to have anything to do with them. You would want to get away from them. There are people in your life you won't even talk to right now because they hurt you in some way. They maligned you in some way. They didn't speak kindly of you, or they did they let you down and some of you won't even talk to them. Jesus has just said, there is nothing about you that says me. You make me want to puke. I can't get my mind off you. I can't leave you alone. Because I want you. And so guess what? I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to keep tampering with you. I'm going to keep messing with you. I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to do whatever I've got to do to make sure that you don't live apart from me because you're mine. The only thing this church had going for it is that it was Jesus' church. They didn't have any faith to commend them. They didn't have any worship. They didn't have any good deeds. They had nothing to commend them to Jesus except for His affection for them. And in that way we're very analogous cuz that's our main thing that Jesus actually likes you people I don't know why but he likes us and he wants us and so when he says these threatening things it's like those posters in the locker room when I was a kid that with a guy with his face falling off that says don't dip! It's that because they want your face to fall off? It's because they don't want your face to fall off from smokeless tobacco. You warn people because you don't want the thing you're warning them about to happen. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to be blessed, listen to what I'm saying. Invite me in. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the doors, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. If you think that Jesus just wants you to feel guilty, if you think Jesus is up to no good in your life, you're not going to open the door to him. You're going to barricade yourself against him. You're going to keep parts of your life secluded from him and sequestered away. A few years ago, I was sleeping at a friend's house for the night in Nashville on a unicorn couch, which is just an interesting detail. <laughs> and it was the middle of the night... I was in a deep, deep sleep. The kind of sleep where you're, if you're jarred awake, you don't feel your body, you don't know where you are, it's totally dark. I had no idea what was happening except for this woman who was screaming at the top of her lungs, Turn it down! Turn it down. Turn it down! She was screaming and screaming. And I didn't even know where I was. I certainly didn't hear a thing except for her screeches. And she was insistent, Turn it down! She was beating on the door. And you know what I was not going to do? Open that door. She might have a knife. I saw fatal attraction. This lady was screaming at the top of her lungs for me to turn it down, and I couldn't hear anything. So obviously, she was in a nightmare. She was daydreaming. She was crazy. She hadn't taken her medicine, something. But I was not going to open the door to her because I thought, if I open the door to her, who knows what's going to happen, and I'm a big guy. But she was angry. We were not making any noise. We were all asleep. It was perfectly black and dark and quiet. Eventually she left. Funny, I don't hear it anymore, she said. <laughs> <laughs> if you think that Jesus means you ill, that he just wants you to feel guilty all the time, that he's just, his, his whole goal is just to ruin your life, you don't believe what he's saying here, you don't take the heart that He says, I love you. So if I let trouble come in your life, it's just to wean you off of your riches so you'll love me. That's why Don Dunn said, every time I start to get a little ahead, I get a toothache. Some of you have financial trouble just because it's God's way of keeping you honest. He wants you leaning on Him. We're never, We're never going to be the church that Jesus wants us to be. We're never going to have the fragrance of Him fully like He wants us to Unless we're all routinely saying, Jesus, boy, I'm sorry. He says, repent. Be earnest and repent. We say, Jesus, I'm sorry you're right about me. There's a lot about me still that's just too selfish. Can you, can you work an overhaul in me? There's a lot about me that's too suspicious of you and so I'm not willing to take risk on you. Will you give me faith and help me to move in obedience to serve others? Would you help me not to think of my business as something that's separate from you and help me to think of myself as working as your person in my business and in my family and in my neighborhood and on the sports field? Jesus, come in. Let me not keep you at bay. We've got to be a church that's constantly inviting Jesus. Come in. Take over. Undo us. Rework us. And send us out so that we're able to offer either the hot, medicinal, therapeutic healing of the gospel. Or else the cold, refreshing wonders of Jesus. But none of this stuff that makes you want to vomit. Not like spoiled milk. Not like a river that burns. But like a place that gives life. Because we have the life giver living in us. Amen.